Hello and welcome to another episode. Uh, today I want to discuss being multidisciplinary in the humanities as well as coming from a different career background and being in the humanities right now. So um, to discuss those topics with me, I chose the most diverse person. I, it's not even a lie. It's the most diverse person that I know. Uh, I, I really think it is. It's Don Joseph. Hi, everyone. Thank you <laughs> for coming back. Um, yeah, so Don, we did an episode together already. Uh, and when I asked you to introduce yourself, we gave the short answer because we wanted to talk about something else. But in this episode, I want the long answer. I think we all want the long answer. Okay. <laughs> so Don Joseph, my most diverse friend that I have, who are you? Who are you? Give us a general view of who you are, where you're from, mm -hmm. where you've lived, and what you've studied. Okay, yeah. And as I was saying, if you listen to the other episode, this is... It's a very complicated question to always get into this idea of like where you're from because I never have a definitive answer to that because I've lived in so many different places and experienced so many different things and have been around so many different kinds of people. And it's rare that I, am, you know, I encounter other people who've experienced my kind of life. You know, I have some people, but I think it's in general, most people don't understand what it means to be, you know, what this phenomenon that people will call like a third culture kid, right? So someone that kind of grows up in a place that's not their mother or their father's, um, you know, culture yeah. right, from, the, from the beginning. Um, but as I was kind of talking about before, so I've lived in Beirut, Lebanon. I lived in Morocco. I lived in France. I lived in Spain, the U.S., and then sometime in Germany and Italy. So I come on, yeah, come I've, on! I'm jealous. I've lived all over, and I've seen so many things, and it's given me a passion for learning languages, to learn about culture, to learn about society, human interaction, which has you know culminated a lot into you know why I'm doing what I do today, um, which wasn't necessarily something that I thought about when I was younger. When I was younger, you know, I always knew that I was into, you know, literature, philosophy. Like, I was always this person who was reading. Oh, stop it. Always. Like, Baby Don was always yeah. like Big Don. I, yeah, I was always just with a book. Actually, but now I'm more social. When I was younger, I was not social. No, I don't believe you. I was not. Um, people like, oh, how did you learn languages? Like, they're interacting. I'm like, no, I didn't. I just read dictionaries and spoke to myself. That's or so I, I would go oh home my to my gosh. parents because thankfully I have parents that, you know, can speak multiple languages. But it wasn't just me oh, running on the playground, so practicing. No, I was talking to my books. And, yeah, like I was always reading, like not even lying. I would read, you know, nine, ten hours a day. <laughs> so, okay, let's do a little, like, side sidetrack. Mm -hmm. um, I also loved reading from a young age. But it's not the type of reading, like, I mean, obviously children don't read, like, philosophy. I'm not saying that. But what type of reading did you enjoy as a kid? I was the weird kid. I did enjoy reading philosophy. Gosh. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I would go to my, my father's library, and he's also really into philosophy and literature and these things, although it's really far from what he does. But, um, yeah, I would just take these books, and I would be really into them, and I wouldn't always know what was being said, of course, because the, the vocabulary is something that's, you know, elevated for someone, you know, I was at the time, like, what, six, seven, eight. 
but I made sure that I would get my, my dictionary out or my encyclopedias and that I, is so cute. I would research. And I still love that I had this experience of doing all of this before Google, right? So I, yes. I remember this when I couldn't just go on the internet and search. Also, there was not, it wasn't Wi-Fi. We had all of the dial-up slow internet things that, you know, the kids now will never, never no, know. No, they will never know the 2000s. No. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I always had this natural curiosity. Um, I never was really big into reading fiction until I was older, actually. So that's something that came about. Fascinating. Yeah. That is fascinating. So I actually didn't know. I mean, I'm not even sur I'm surprised. I find it cute. But I, I'm not surprised that Don was always a professor because that's that's kind of who you are. Um, yeah, I, I'm the opposite. So I was I was reading fiction from a young age mm -hmm. and I, I think I think still, still today if I'm not reading like for my research or for work I'm, I'm reading, fiction. reading fiction yeah I just oh my god I mean I think that that's great it's probably a healthier thing because I <laughs> I'm always just reading these really dense philosophical texts and you know a lot of it is just quite existential and I sometimes find myself you know encapsulated or trapped in these kind of texts Um, so, you know, I, yeah, take advantage of that fiction and just, you know, dive in. Yeah. And I can see and, and we'll get to that. But I can see knowing you and knowing kind of what you research and what you're interested in. I can see where you would start uh, as a kid. So that that's mm -hmm. really nice. Uh, what was the role of like culture and this multiculturalism? And how did that shape you as a kid? Like I... I never, I think I am technically a, a product of multiculturalism, but I struggle with calling myself that because I think I'm very monocultured. Yeah. Um, my parents were not, they were born in like, it was still a, a French colony, right? Yeah. But they didn't raise me with their culture. Yeah. So I only know French culture and I, it's mm -hmm. only the, it's the only culture that I really call home. I think you're very different in that perspective. So as a kid... Did you, like, how did you see culture and how did you see this mix of culture? Did you choose? Did you just, like, accept all of it? Like, how was it? Oh, that's a great question because I had many phases, right? So my parents always tried to instill in me more of my mom than my dad. Like, this idea of being, you know, you're a multicultural person and you should love or appreciate or at least learn about all of these different facets of yourself. Mm -hmm. And, you know... When I was really young, I think I was really, I was probably more multicultural when I was younger than I am now because I was just trying to absorb so much yeah. and learning. And then I hit a phase of like, oh, I'm only going to kind of adhere to wherever I'm living. So if, if I'm living, oh. you know, in Germany right now, then I want to act like German people. If I'm living in Spain, I want to act like that. If I'm in the U.S., oh, I'm only going to be like an American. Assimilation. Voilà, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So completely trying to be assimilated yeah. which was strange because no one was forcing me to do that yeah, I was doing that you. myself yeah. you know so it really was like this period I think of me I think as a teen and when I spent like a larger period in the U.S. that like I had this moment of like oh I even refused to speak any other language outside of English like I, I only had this period of like oh I'm gonna be just super anglophone and that's it Wow. Um, and then now, thankfully, things have come full circle and yeah, I'm not doing that because I'm definitely <laughs> not only speaking English most of my most of the time anyway. Um, and now I'm, I'm able to kind of also put that into my work. Right. Where in, yeah. my, in my work, I'm trying to show kind of how cultural diversity is this beautiful thing that has helped to to bring so many people together 
that can you know be this this bridging between people, culture, nations, etc. Yeah. That is so funny because uh, yeah, I never knew that you were like trying to kind of choose mm-hmm. one culture because now like I would not describe you as someone who's like one culture. Yeah. When people ask me like when I talk about my friend Don. And they ask me, like, you know, if I have to say, like, where you're from, I'm like, where, where do I even start? Like, I don't know. I can't tell you. Just talk to him. Um, yeah, I would not assign, like, one culture to you. And I've never seen you do that. So it's so mm-hmm. funny to, I mean, I feel like teenagers and when you're a kid, you can't get to do those things. Like, yeah. you just, because you're building your identity, so you just do it in, like, a very Manichaean way. Exactly. Like, I'm going to be that. It's and that means simple. Exactly. It has to be simple. So being X means I'm not going to be all of those things. Exactly. Right? Uh, which is so funny. So I want to know now, uh, where did you go to school, especially from middle school? Oh, I'm also interested in primary school. So where did mm-hmm. you go to school? And then what did you study first when you went to college? Okay. Yeah, great. So For where I went to school from primary to secondary school, it's like many different places. (laughs) And so it would be like, you know, I would do two or three years in one place and then we would have to switch because of my father's career as a diplomat. So it's like, okay, I would be in this period of time, I'm in Lebanon. And in the next period of time, if he's assigned somewhere else, then you you go there. If I had to pick where I did most of my my education, it's between Lebanon and the U.S. Okay. Um, So these were kind of the two biggest I guess dominant forces in terms of my my schooling Mm -hmm. Um, but even then when I was going to schools in Lebanon they they were French schools so it's still like I'm in France so I guess I can put France in there too and that is fascinating so you would go to like the um, like the French school like from the how how they would say like the official yes so it's like like if it's coming from the educational nationale these are these establishments that are yeah they're being managed by French directors etc so it's still very much so like it's a French institution, but not in mainland France. That is fascinating. We'll have to go back to that uh, topic. Maybe not today, but one day I'll love to know why. Mm. Um, but yeah, not today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, and then from uh, like middle school and... Yeah, so then from middle school, middle school was great. I spent two years in Spain. So yeah, and I was in Catalonia. So this was where I really fell in love with wanting to... Because if anyone that knows me pretty much knows that Spain is like my ultimate yes. retirement zone. <laughs> or before, if someone before. has a job that's listening as a please. professor, please hire me right now. <laughs> like, I love Missouri, but Spain is my number one. It's going to be in my heart forever. And I think that this was a really formative period because this was a place, or at least at the time, where cultural diversity was much more limited from some of the other places I lived. Beirut... I won't say that it's the most diverse cultural place um, outside of, you know, other Middle Eastern nations, but it still has a lot of diversity to offer. Um, There's tons of ethnic groups, languages, uh, religion is very diverse. But then when I was in Spain, it's when I really was confronted with, you know, the singular identities. So people that are not half this, half that, or biracial, or, you know, you know, having to always kind of explain why they have a split identity. And for me, I thought that 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 was very bizarre because I had never encountered that. And then, of course, when I'm older, then you realize that's just because of like histories of migration and war. Colonization. Colonization. And this is why these people don't have this but identity. But whenever I was confronted by that, I was like, oh, that's weird. And that's when I also had this period of of time myself having 
feeling as though I had to choose one. So then I would just say, okay, I'm just X or that or that. Like I never had this like long explanation. It's just like, okay, I'm going to just have to go with the path of least resistance, right? And when you're in Spain, it's easier to always just go with another European identity. So then that's when I'm like, okay, I'm just French because that's the easiest way to go. Because if you go in the other direction, it comes with stereotypes. If you go in the other direction, it comes with another one. And French was always the one to really get out of you know, a lot of the big stereotypes. That's so fascinating. And also, I guess, culturally closer. Yeah, exactly. So it would be reassuring for them also. Yeah, exactly. To be like, oh, okay, he's not that culturally far from yeah. us. Yeah. And, it's, yeah, and it's not far away. Like, it's, yeah, it's like a, a friendly neighbor. A friendly neighbor <laughs> just across the Pyrenees. Yes. Uh, and then where did you go to college and what did you first study when you were in college? Yeah, so... My first university I went to actually went in the U.S., so it was in Texas. Yes. So I went to the University of North Texas, and there I actually studied neuroscience. Um, so I always knew that I wanted to be a scientist and that I'm always really intrigued by the processes of the brain and how neurochemical reactions kind of control our existence and our embodiment and all of these actions and how we perceive the world. Yeah. Um, and from the very beginning of starting in that, like I was just super passionate also, some of the books that I read when I was young would just be these really big anthologies of neuroscience. So you can get these detailed descriptions of all of like the nerve endings, how bones are making up the body. Anything that was anatomy or physiology was something that really was um, inspiring to me, right? Um, so then it wasn't until probably halfway through that period that I, I also, like, of course, as I said, I, I enjoyed literature. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I have time here because I already did my degree so fast. So I was like, okay, do I graduate in two years, which is really fast, or do I do something else and extend for one more year? And I was like, okay, I will do that like extended one-year thing. And I added French literature, actually. Oh, nice. And, and it was only because I had a great professor that really inspired me. Her name is Marie-Christine Coupe. And now she's retired, but she came into the class and had this really, she was so passionate about teaching her subject. And anytime she came in, she was always willing to help us answer any of our questions. She knew her work really well. I don't think I've ever met a professor that can, you know, just cite so many of different, so many different texts, you know. And uh, for me, that really brought this passion in me of, you know, continuing to study literary studies. And it was only within my last year that that, that spark happened for me. So, you know, I think to myself, you know, if the spark hadn't happened, um, I probably wouldn't be here today. Yeah. Because um, I also did uh, graduate studies in neuroscience still. So, so you were really going to go on that path. Yeah. Of, yeah. That's fascinating. Even once I was, a, even for PhDs, I applied for PhDs in neuroscience as well. So I applied for PhDs in neuroscience and literature. And yeah, it was just really a last minute decision of, you know, where do I think I can situate myself in the long term? Um, and I still see myself there. So who knows? Maybe I will do a second PhD in the future. Um, not sure. anytime soon. Not anytime <laughs> not soon. Now you need like a 10-year yeah, break. Yeah, it's a 10-year break. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, so it's safe to say that when you were growing up, you know, as a kid, as a teenager, and as a young adult, you really wanted to be a doctor, like a, neuro- a neuroscientist? Yeah. That's yeah, the either, word. Yeah, it was, I was always between either neuroscientist, neurologist, or neurosurgeon. Neurosurgeon. Oh, yeah. gosh. Yes. Yeah. That's... So, yeah. So it was always, yeah, I always was really 
sure about this. And even today, I still keep up on literature. Um, I have a lot of friends in the medical field, so I'm still able to have these discussions, which I think helps me to keep going, right? (laughs) Yeah, and also I like the fact that even though, like, you're not in the immediate future going to be working in that field, Mm -hmm. I really like that you're still documenting yourself on it. Yeah. Because I believe that, you know, I also document myself on lots of crazy things that I I know I'm never going to work in, Mm -hmm. but I'm interested in. And I think that interest, that it's not an interest, it's like that um, we have a facility for learning because we want to learn and we're curious about lots of things. And perhaps it has to do with, you know, that multicultural background. I don't know. But um, that's something that I can recognize in both of us that, you know, wanting to learn. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really important, too. And, you know, while we're on the topic of like of neuroscience to avoid like all of these neurodegenerative diseases, also like this idea that yes. we're still using our brains and that we're trying to think through new things in complex ways. Uh, these are great ways to you know, also keep our minds healthy. Don't settle. Yeah. Never yeah, settle. Never. Keep going always. Yeah, there's always more. Just don't <laughs> overwhelm yourself, but there's always more. Yes, yes. Um, yes. So now I want to know uh, how did you get here at Pitt? Uh, what happens between, you know, Texas and neuroscience and how did you get here? Why mm-hmm. here? So why Pitt? It's a, it's a great question. So... Also with kind of my interests, you know, as a queer person, I always was, you know, just fascinated by the lived experiences of other queer people. But okay. not just, you know, in the traditional sense of like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be studying white queer men because I'm like, I'm over that. <laughs> like, no, I'm like, let's look at, you know, queer men and women who are in Africa, the Middle East, these closest that are these places that are close to me and my interests and, you know, trying to see how we can make the situation better for, for these people. Absolutely. Um, I was like, okay. Let me start doing a, a search. So programs where I can see people that are doing work that's similar to what I want to do, or I can see that they kind of have things in place that they can develop it or that I can develop it when I'm there because I'm really into program building. So I told myself, if they don't have it, then I can maybe go there and help them have it, you know? Um, and there was a professor at the time who's no longer here actually at Pitts, and I was going to work with him And his work was greatly aligned with, you know, what I was doing or what I am doing, but um, what I was specifically doing at the time that I was applying for programs. So um, I decided to apply. I was in touch with him. And then I also was in touch with my current co-director, Todd Reeser, who uh, shared some articles with me of his work. And I was greatly impressed. Um, So that led me to apply to, to Pitt. Of course, I applied to many other programs, too. And I was accepted to many other programs, and I also was accepted to many programs in neuroscience and some in comparative literature. Um, So I really did have a choice at the end, and I think I came to Pitt because I saw the potential for, you know, the the ability to grow as a scholar, as a person, and to have many opportunities afterwards. Um, I also had, I knew people that were here too, so that helped a lot. Um, Like my good friend Emma, she was at Pitt and in the French department, so that helped to kind of acclimate me to this big move. And I have another friend, Mark, who was, um, we studied together in Texas, and then he was here, but in the math department, so that also helped with this transition. So I think when all of these things aligned, kind of like when people say the stars align, (laughs) it seemed like the best choice. And at the end, I'm I'm glad and happy that I made the choice that I made um, because it's been, you know, 
six long years of work, but also <laughs> six long years of, of many great uh, experiences at Pitt. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love that um, that story you just said. And, and yeah, um, I'm glad that, <laughs> that you came at Pitt, too, because I would not have met you. I mean, yeah. I'm sure we'd have met. Yeah, we, we would have met. Yeah, just for sure. not in the same circumstance. Yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty glad. Yeah, Pitt is, is kind of, I mean, Pittsburgh in general, because it's so university focused. I mean, I feel like it is. It is. Um, it brings a lot of people together. Like, you know, you can meet people from everywhere. And, and yeah. there are just a lot of diasporas. And yeah, that that's definitely a great aspect of Pittsburgh. So Coming from all those diverse, um, you know, experiences, those different places, whether it's in Europe, in the Middle East, um, how did you find like the adjustment here? So was it easy to adjust to Pittsburgh, to living here? No. And I will say that it's still an adjustment, you know, to this day and that I don't think that I will ever feel completely adjusted. I think when you had so many different experiences. Anytime you're in a place, you're still always thinking about the next step and what's the next move. And, you know, this question of, oh, am I actually happy here? Would I would my life be better if like I just go back to Lebanon, if I move to Morocco, if I go to France, you know, and it's always this question of, you know, where does one feel most at home and where does one feel as though they have a community? So I think that in Pittsburgh, it's, you know, it was not the easiest transition, like despite having friends, having a department where people are supportive and, you know, at the time having like um, other colleagues that, you know, were just really focused on like work, but also building relationships with their other colleagues. um, I think that it still was a very difficult period because also it's like now you're also moving into grad studies. So you're just inundated by a lot of information. Now people are thinking about teaching. Like I didn't teach my first year, but I did my second. And then it's like, okay, now you have another responsibility. And then another one and another one. Then now you have to do conferences and you need to publish and you have to do all of these exams. So I think when you mix all of these things together, it can just be so overwhelming to anyone. And then when you add this idea of, oh, I don't really feel like I belong in this space. Um, that adds an, uh, an extra, you know, layer of, of that challenge, right? So it's not always something that's, you know, an easy thing to adjust to. And I don't think that me personally, I, I still haven't necessarily adjusted yeah. to it. I agree. I agree. I, you know, Pittsburgh is is strange. Uh, I think it's a great place, obviously. I like living here. But in, in many ways, it yeah, you get those difficulties all the time. And I still feel like I'm... I think I will always be an outsider because it's not like home, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's 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 hard. It's overwhelming. Yeah. It's overwhelming to be here at work and you you know on campus and and being in our department and working and you know doing all those responsibilities that yeah. you just spoke about and speak and trying to like think about your future also and be like, you know, I have to do this really well because this is going to impact my future and and I have to network and all of those things and at the same time you're also in this place for a long time, five years, six years, and you want to make memories that are not professional necessarily. Exactly. Right? You want to have a life here. And that is really, I think that's been challenging. I mean, I, I think we've been, we've been quite lucky. We have a good group mm-hmm. of friends here. Um, I love my friends here in Pittsburgh. But in some ways, it's also, it, it is hard sometimes. Yeah. Like, it is hard sometimes, yeah. Um so I want to know now, how do you incorporate your previous academic and professional or 
personal experiences to your work as a scholar. And I think that's, that's like, if I could, <laughs> you know, say like in one sentence who you are, I feel like that's what you do best because you, what you do, like your research is kind of focused on who, like you can find who you are if you read Dondry. Like, <laughs> yeah. So how do you do that? And also why? Yeah, I, I really love this question and, and thank you. I think that you're, you're, you're definitely right in that if you read my research, it's, it's me. And, I, and that's something that I always made clear from the beginning and that like, I'm a specialist of migration and refugee studies and specifically queer migrants, right? And I'm always thinking about how movement as this process shapes our identities, our subjectivities, our embodiments, and how through this crossing of borders, right, you have to change your identity, right? Because in order to exist in different spaces, we have different fluctuating identities. It doesn't mean that you're not you. You're just a different version of you. It's right? just adapting. Yeah, you're adapting. Like you yeah, adapt. exactly. So you're like integrating yourself. I don't want to say assimilating, more integrating yeah. yourself. It's loaded. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, it's a loaded term, especially in like the Francophone context. Um, but Adapting. I, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a better one, adapting. Yeah, so you always have to kind of adapt to, to your environment. And I try to incorporate it in so many different ways, whether I'm teaching. So when I'm teaching a course, you know, I always try to introduce texts that I, that I work on that are related to my research. Of course, keeping in mind the student's interest. If I think it's something that they just will hate, I'm, not, I'm never going to do yeah. that. You're not suicidal. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> I don't want to sit in silence, you know, for an hour or, or three if you're teaching a grad yeah. seminar. Um, so through that and then through the conferences that I present at, I try to always make sure that the research is still aligned with my core research project, but also showing the ways in which it evolves, just like how I'm evolving, right? So if I'm talking about a specific text, I want to also depict the ways in which I see that text connecting to my own embodiment of, of the world and of my different, of my kind of diverse cultural background and diverse experiences uh, as well. So I do think that with reading my work or engaging with my work, it does, you know, it's kind of like a roadmap to... To, to understand me and my experiences, but also it's not a roadmap with like a definitive end because I think that like this question of like, who are you? I don't think that it's, you know, it's a never ending thing, right? Like I don't I think that even in death, right? Um, people, you're still being constructed because people are still going to talk about you yeah. and even then and this identity is always, it's always in flux. It's always changing. That's fascinating. I, I didn't think about that, but it's its so true. Uh, if you think about authors, for sure, yeah. uh, that can change. I was going to ask a question that's not on my script here. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that you do that, um, meaning your research and like talking about those topics that relate to you? Do you think that this is for a search of identity. And I don't mean it in like, you don't know who you are. Like, you're not lost. Just because you have multiple identities or you identify to multiple things doesn't mean that you don't know who you are. Mm -hmm. I think you know who you are. But I don't think you, I think you don't want to like have a box where you're like stuck in it. And I feel like when you do this research that, as you said, is evolving constantly, yeah. it's also you. So is it like also a way for you to how would you say to kind of personify who you are into your research For is that sure. a good no yeah i think that's that's a fair assessment and i'm i'm this person that i don't like you know to be categorized or typified and put in this this box you know as you say 
And I think that this project or any of the projects I'm working on, you know, are, are ways for me to avoid that. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm I'm using other people's voices, too, because it's, it's literature. So we have to study authors and different scholars and, and whatnot. So I use this as a way to, you know, also put myself in conversation with other people that, you know, feel similarly, um, but also with people that feel differently. And then I can mm-hmm. critique that, right, because that's something that we do. So I think, yeah, it's definitely this... I guess, identitarian quest and this want to avoid being, you know, just told. Cause, yes. And I think that some some parts of society tend to tell people that you only can be one thing or two things and blah. But uh, human beings are much more complex than that. Everything is more complex than that, not just human beings. So I really want us to think through these ways um, in which we can see people as, as diverse individuals. And I, I put like this asterisk on individuals, right, to mm-hmm. not have it as the opposite of collective, but mm-hmm. individuals as in like our own embodiment of a personhood. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely agree with your assessment. I yeah. think that it's also this way of, for me to, to, to trace my own roots and also find who I am, but not, not in a way of finding myself and saying, OK, you only can say that you're this and you're done. But, you know, to, to embrace who I am. It's a quest that has a lot of answers. Yeah. that doesn't. It's not just like at the end of the quest, if there is an end. No, I don't think <laughs> there is an end. There is no end. But um, when the, the quest evolves and, and you find the answers, they're not definitive answers. I think that's what it is. I mean, there can be multiple. There can be multiple answers. Um my last scripted question is, uh, do you have any tips for other diverse graduate students or young scholars who would like to, you know, make it like us in the humanities, uh, but who do not want to lose, you know, who they think they are or some, some past experiences that they may have had in lots of different places? So how can, you know, young graduate students, young scholars incorporate, you know, their identities, plural, mm-hmm. into what they do without losing them themselves. It's a it's a tough question, but it I is. think you can have some idea. Yeah, and I think that this is a question that could be handled in so many different ways. Um, but I'll I will try my best to 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 give a definitive, not a definitive. I hate that word. What am I saying? That? But some kind <laughs> Done? of yeah. Where are you? I was like, what am I doing? I don't want to say definitive because that means like I'm not the authority on no, this. Yeah. But I've I've experienced this, these challenges, you know, especially as like a student of color. And doing a PhD and like we're not, there's not so many of us, right? Yes. So it's such a small world. And I think it becomes even smaller once you enter the other phase of your academic career as a professor. Um, then I think the number shrinks even more. And yeah. in the humanities, you know, it shrinks again, right? Yeah. Because I think a lot of these people are normally in the sciences. So in the humanities, you already have a lower number. But I think that for for students now that are thinking about, you know, graduate studies or the next step, how to succeed in the humanities, it's really important to find some sense of community because I think that you can't try to tackle everything alone and that it's important to, you know, have conversation with your other, um, with other colleagues that you can, especially if they're also diverse like you. I think that then you can have their input or their perspective. Maybe they've had similar things happen to them and that can be, you know, a great sense of comfort for you to realize, okay, I'm not alone. Other mm-hmm. people have experienced these things. Or maybe you're also applying for jobs at the same time as them. It's always great to have someone else that's going through 
what you're going through, even if you might be competition, but support them, right? Because well, if something good happens for them, it can happen for you. Yeah. And you and have you, another. You would be competition anyway. Like even if you're, you can yeah. collaborate and still be competition because you you'll be competition at the end of the day anyway. Exactly. So. so yeah, just always try to have these, uh, to build these really rich connections with uh, with as many people as you can, and also to make sure that you maintain a voice. And I think a lot of people think that you know, in academia, you only can you have to do everything by the book. You cannot go against the grain. You can't, you know, try to have super radical ideas. And I think, you know, that there was a lot of space for these things and that we don't always have to cite, you know, the same people over and over. I think that we need to be beyond, you know, canonical literature. We love doing that. Yeah. It's, it's mad. And like you just see, you know, you can read something and, you know, the text will talk about or on the cover it will talk about how something is innovative or cutting edge. And then you go through and it's the same scholar from 1960 yeah, that's been repeated over it. I'm like... Let's not do that. And, you know, also as as graduate students, whenever we're working on articles to publish, we also should be trying to to cite younger scholars or people who are not cited as much. Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of work gets overlooked, not just because of the work is not quality work. It's just because people are so stuck on using names. So they say, why would I cite this person when I could when I should be citing someone else that's more famous and that's not always productive. We also need to try to uplift, you know, people who are just starting out, um, people who are looking to transition to another phase of their career and advance or or maybe get them more involved in kind of public humanities discourses or having lecture series and just collaborate. Like we all should be collaborating so much more. And that's something that the humanities, I, I always wanted, I wanted to change because in other fields, they're they're highly prone to, to collaborate, even on articles. But for us, it's it's usually just so individualistic. And it makes me think about, you know, um, the state of the humanities and how sustainable it is to, to continue having such an isolating um, kind of career, right? Because it's like outside of teaching and your meetings and everything else, a lot of that time is spent alone researching and writing, whereas I think it could be much more... Um, useful information if you were just you know writing with someone else maybe not even collaborating on the same article but you know having someone there to dialogue with yes. and to support you and maybe you can edit each other's work like i think these would be great opportunities so if you can start early as a graduate student undergraduate student or a high schooler or before if you're listening to that i think that this could be you know um a great practice to start yeah. Yes. Oh, well, well, you answered that question like a boss. <laughs> uh, but yeah, community, having yeah, a community. community. Yeah. I, I agree. I think we, I, I kind of had a community when I first got here, but it definitely has changed uh, the past, I think the past year. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think, um, I mean, partly thanks to you, because you got me to like working out of home and like mm -hmm. going to coffee shops and and just like writing, like we would just like write like all the fall, like that's all yeah. we did. Um, and and I really loved, love, love doing that. And I wasn't, it wasn't a habit of mine before. So yeah, building that community, that that circle of people who are just like you, diverse yeah. and trying to to you know uh, have a career in the humanities. I really agree with that. Uh, the outreach and just not being alone. Yeah. Uh, awesome. And obviously, yeah, the interdisciplinary um, aspect is very important. Yes, exactly. So like even the, the other graduate students that you're trying to engage with, they don't have to, and they shouldn't be doing all the same things that you're trying to do because that doesn't help you grow as a scholar. So reach out far and wide on your campus. You never know who could be 
like, you know, interested in learning more about your work. You can be interested in learning about their work or working together. Um, that's how connections are made. So, you know, just because you're in humanities doesn't mean you can't, you know, be making friends with people that are in STEM fields, right? So I think that we should be more open and mindful about our engagements and trying to cultivate relationships um, because you just you never know, right? You never, you never know, know what, sure. yeah. And there's so much room for, you know, um, like medical humanities is, you know, a really growing thing. So I think that you never know where collaborations could, could lead. Yeah, there's so much to be that can be done. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, thank you so much, Don. Thank you. Um, it was a great episode. I learned so much because uh, a lot of these questions we never really talked about. Uh, and so <laughs> that was quite nice for yeah. me. Uh to learn all these new things uh, and, and hopefully I, I hope that people can get inspired uh, by you because you inspire me for sure um, so yeah thank you so much for listening and that was Don Joseph um, thank you for listening and I will see you uh, on the next episode bye everyone <laughs>